Good morning. We are, uh, if you're new with us today, we're in the midst of a series we're titling uh, Just Lead. And we're walking through the book of 1 Samuel. And the book of 1 Samuel is a, is a book about a number of things, but a lot of it is leadership at different levels of how people walk through different scenarios. And leadership isn't just about having huge groups of people around you. In some cases we've seen it could just be a, a mom scenario and she's leading her family or leading uh, and situations she has to walk through. But we're looking at it in a general context of learning to live through transitions, tragedies, and triumphs in life. That's what it is to lead. Just learning how to navigate transitions, tragedies, and triumphs that hit every single one of our lives, no matter where we come from or what our background is or where we're at. These are the things that hit us. And today, in this section, we're going to see a major transition that's taking place in the life of Israel, and in, term, in particular, a, a few individuals. And so this section, if you were here last week, you saw that Israel was uh, w- demanding a king. They really wanted to be just like the other nations that were around them. And it wasn't that having a king was bad in and of itself. It was how they went about it. They weren't trusting God in that process. They were just saying, we want to be just like the nations around us. And they were rejecting their God and even rejecting Samuel as their spiritual leader uh, in that process. And how they did it was very wrong. And, and where we're at this week uh, is in the midst of this section where we see Saul stepping into his role as that first king. And even making some of the early decisions in his kingship that make you realize, uh, I don't know that we're really getting what we'd hoped for. And so we're looking at chapters 9 through 14 this week. I'm going to focus on one chapter right in the middle. But let me set some context for you uh, to see why I pulled out chapter 12 of those chapters. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 really talk about and show how Saul, after they wanted him, becomes uh, anointed by Samuel. He's selected by the people during that time, and he steps into his role as king. And even in one chapter, uh, chapter 11, defeats a, a neighboring enemy, the Ammonites, who was was kind of attacking the Israelites at that time. So initially it looks, hey, this is great. We finally have a king. He's rallying the troops and he's fighting these battles for us. But then as his early reign goes on, you see the true Saul come out. Now, on the outside, Saul looked great. He was head and shoulders, as the scriptures tell us, above everyone else. He was a handsome guy. He came from a wealthy family. Everything that you think you would want in a political leader. And that's why the people were looking for a king. But what you see in the chapters after this, 13 and 14, leading up to what we're going to look at in in chapter 15 next week, you see Saul's character coming out. And two things that you're going to see in Saul's life that caused his leadership to be so damaging. One is Saul is a people pleaser. He's more concerned about what people think of him than he is about following the Lord and what the Lord thinks of them and making decisions that people may not like but are the best for the people. He wants everyone to like him and, and that'll crush you as a leader and it'll harm you as uh, the people that you try to lead when that's the case. The other thing you see about Paul and you're going to learn about him is that he's a partial obedience kind of guy. And Unlike any of us, right, we full obey full-heartedly everything that God wants us to do. But Saul didn't do that. He does kind of bits and pieces, and he'll tell you, well, I did this, I did this, I did this. But he doesn't tell you that there's three major things that were part of it that he didn't do. 
his partial obedience is going to undermine him as we go. And so that's kind of what chapters 9 through 14 reveal. In order to avoid covering all that, I gave you a a snapshot, but right in the middle of it is interesting. Chapter 12 fits right in the middle of this section where you see Samuel coming into his kingship. And chapter 12 is different. Everything else is about Saul. Chapter 12 is about Samuel. Because as Saul is rising up as king, Samuel is diminishing as the judge, the priest, and the prophet that he had been called to be in this process. And you see the two being compared. And and what we're going to see in chapter 12 is kind of Samuel's last words. You're going to see him a little bit throughout the rest of the book, but very little. You're going to see his very much diminished. This is kind of his final farewell words and and last big hurrah and how he encourages the people of Israel to move forward now in spite of the decision that they made. This poor decision, how they blew it in seeking a king and wanting to be like everyone else. Now what do they do? And here's the three things I want you to see from this section in chapter 12. How do I blow it? As, as followers, as God's people, how do I often blow it? What are some of the ways I do that? And we're going to look at that and see that in here. It may be different than how we often think. How do I blow it? Second thing we're going to see is what do I do or what should I do when I've blown it? Now, that's probably not going to apply to any of you guys, but I know you know have friends that have blown it before, and you're going to have to share this message with them, right? And you guys are bad. <laughs> Either you got a humility problem, right, or or you've had a really good week, right? right? What, what do I do? What should I do when I've blown it? Because we do that. And then lastly, why does God accept us back even when we've blown it? So how do I blow it? What do I do or what should I do when I've blown it? And why does God accept us back even in the midst of our silly or stupid choices like we've made, like Israel we see here? So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12, in your worship guide, there's a spot for you to take some notes. The page number is listed there. If you're new to your Bible or or don't have a Bible, there's some in the chairs in front of you. Hardcover Bibles and the page number will take you right to chapter 12. We're going to jump in midway into this chapter just because it's a long chapter and I'll summarize what was prior to it and we'll focus on the latter half, which is the main part of it. Let's pray and then we'll answer these questions. Father, thank you so much for these truths. And and Lord, what's so amazing is here we can stand and gather as your church several thousand years after these events took place and actually hold a book that's recorded them for us. Lord, most of the time we'd never be able to touch a book that's this ancient and has truths this old. They'd be in museums or or libraries or places behind glass because of that rarity of them. But Lord, for your word, you have preserved this and multiple copies of it and it's been spread and and communicated across this world and now we can gather today and even learn lessons that you are teaching your people even several thousand years ago. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts today that we would understand these truths that you were teaching them so that as we as your people in our day can learn from them. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how do I blow it? What should I do when I blow it? And why does God even accept me back when I blow it? 
1 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 12. So let me summarize what's happened up, up before this. Samuel's kind of talking about his, his like final farewell, and he's saying, hey, I'm an old man now, and, and you know I've served you all these years. That's kind of how he starts off. But then he goes from transitioning to him and transitioning. He gives this overview of, of how God has been their king and their God throughout time. And he starts from Egypt. When God called this nation out of Egypt, and he said, look, God's been your king. He has protected you all these years from Egypt to going into the promised land to the times of the judges, and he starts rattling off a handful of the judges that he raised up to protect them, and he starts giving this history of Israel right up to this modern day where they are right now, which is basically chapter 11 right before this. So in verse 12, I'm going to pick up where he's come through this history and right to the moment they're at right now. He says in verse 12, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, that's just what happened in the prior chapter, when they came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So all Samuel's doing is saying, Look, you guys haven't had a king for all the years of your young nation's life. And God has always protected you and preserved you through all these periods. And now suddenly this Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, comes in and you guys are crying out for a king to be just like the other nations. So he's kind of rebuking them in light of what's gone on here. And it says in verse 13, And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So now, as I mentioned, Saul's been instituted. He's even fought this first battle, and he's in place as their king. And they're saying, what do I do now? What, do you, what are they supposed to do now that Saul is their king? And they've made this decision. Verse 14 tells us, If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So there's where you notice he names it, saying, hey, in asking for yourself a king, that was a wicked thing. Even though having a king isn't wrong, it's how they went about doing it. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, this is Samuel speaking, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. 
But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. How do I blow it? What should I do when I blow it? And why does God accept me back when I blow it? The first one is, how do I blow it? And here's my first point for you, and we'll look at it in this story. Is my problem or my pursuit of acceptable things in an unacceptable manner is sinful. Here's the general principle that we see in here, and one that we often overlook as God's people. My pursuit of acceptable things in an unacceptable manner is sinful. And we see this in the story. It wasn't that the Israelites wanted a king. That's not what was wrong, is they went about it in an unacceptable manner. They went about it wanting to trust in that king, wanting to be just like the nations around them. They wanted that that king to fight all their battles rather than them faithfully trusting in God as a people so that they could experience the protection that God had given them. Look at these passages that kind of reveal it. Chapter 12, verses 12 and 17 say, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, no. Meaning, no, we don't want the Lord's protection, but a king, says, shall reign over us. When the Lord, your God, was your king. So it was them rejecting God at that moment and wanting a human king. And then later, when he has this unique passage of judgment we'll look at later, look at what Samuel says. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. See, this is where we as as Christians as well can kind of fall into the same thing. There's nothing wrong with certain things that we might pursue in life that can be good things, but when we pursue them in the wrong way, they become sinful. There's nothing wrong with being successful in this world. There's nothing wrong with wanting our kids to be successful in that sense. But when we pursue those things in an unhealthy manner, it becomes wrong. Meaning overworking for success. When we get so driven by success that we have to have it, and suddenly we begin neglecting other things that are priorities to the Lord, we become sinful in that behavior. When we have to cheat, when we say, hey, if I'm ever going to survive in business in my town, this is just how things are done. And we use phrases like this, hey, business is business and church stuff is church stuff. Or spiritual things are spiritual things and business is business. When we throw around phrases like that, what we're saying is, is that what I'm really pursuing, the success I really want, I'm willing to compromise who I am and who God is in order to get what I truly want. There's nothing wrong with success. When God blesses your work and your efforts and brings them success to them, there's nothing wrong with that. But when we compromise in order to get it, that's when it becomes wrong. When we push our kids to no end to be successful in school and we drive them and, and push them so hard for non-eternal success or when we fabricate success for them and, and create it for them that's not really theirs, in fact, I saw this just recently. We're in the midst of, with our younger kids, and maybe some of you can relate to this, the science fair projects and the book fair projects. Any of you have done those things? I think they're from the pit of hell, honestly. <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm, I'm not, really. I've almost lost my sanctification over these kinds of projects. Here's what I witnessed. 
I see one unbelievable projects put on elementary age kids with very little help given to them. And then here's what happens is parents are so concerned that their kids won't look as successful as other kids that we all know when these projects come in, when I'm dropping off my kids, I'm a little bit embarrassed sometimes dropping them off because we actually let our kids do their projects. And these other kids are coming out with something that even Einstein couldn't have done, you know, when he was in high school. And they're a second grader. They can't even carry the thing. And their parents and their grandparents, everyone's coming in with their semi-truck. And, oh, this kid did it. They really did. They're probably the smartest person in the history of the universe. And we fabricate this success for our kids that there's nothing wrong with them being successful. But when we go about it in an unethical way, it's wrong. We've blown it, and that's exactly what God is saying here. And you can say, well, well, Chad, but I mean, my business has been successful. I've done really well, or, or my kids have really survived, thrived in, in school, and they've been successful in athletics. So that must be a sign that God's blessing them. That's why we need to read stories like this. Israel got their king. They got what they wanted. But in spite of that, God made it very clear to them through Samuel that what they wanted was an evil thing. You see, don't for one minute think that because you've achieved success or because your kids have achieved some form of success that that justifies the means by which you got there. God often gives people what they really want to show them that what they really want will never accomplish what they truly need. And that's what you see at the beginning. My pursuit of acceptable things in an unacceptable manner is sinful. Second thing is, what do we do then? And Samuel so graciously and God so graciously says, here's how you're going to go forward. And he speaks to them in these next few passages. And here's my point that I think that, that helps us as we go forward. Is when I blow it, move forward in obedient faith, don't turn away from God. Here's what I want you to see in this next part of the story is when I blow it, when we will, don't turn away. We can go back. Go back. There you go. Move forward in obedient faith. I know some of you are freaking out because you didn't get, it's all about your performance. You thought, I blew it. I didn't get that point down. God's never going to love me. Oh my goodness. Don't turn away from God. I should put the answers like upside down and really small at the bottom of the page, right? You guys remember that? Or in the back of the Let me show you this in the, in the passage. In verses 14 through 15, look at how Samuel encourages them in the midst of this. He says, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king." jump down to verses 19 and 21 it says and all the people said to Samuel pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king and Samuel said to the people do not be afraid you have done all this evil so he doesn't deny it he acknowledges it but he tells them here's how you go forward yet do not turn aside from following the Lord but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. I think Paul, uh, uh, Samuel here addresses what's our human nature. When we blow it, 
It is our human nature to try to hide from God in those moments. And that's why I think these words are so important to us, is we tend to run when we've blown it, because we all do this, and we're ashamed of it. In fact, it started in the very first story in the Bible where we blew it. You remember where the first story is in the Bible where we, where we blew it as humans? Adam and Eve, the very first human beings. They blow it in the garden, and what did they do? They hid. First, they tried to cover themselves. They, they recognized their shame and what was, what was fine for them and, and perfect for them initially. Now they had to cover themselves up and they covered themselves up with vines or leaves or whatever they had to use. And then when God came into the garden, they hid from him. They ran from him. The very one who created them and had their best interest in mind, they ran from. And they tried to cover up their mistake. And God, even in that story, we sometimes don't catch it because it's so subtle. We don't see that God wanted them to come back to, to him and that he had provided and was going to provide for their mistake. You see, God said, what you're covering yourself with, that's not going to cover up your mistakes. And God, we don't see the details, but he killed some kind of animal. Some kind of animal was sacrificed, and he covered them with the skins of those animals. Even at the very beginning, God was showing that he is going to cover the brokenness and sinfulness of his people with a substitutionary sacrifice. And he's saying, come back to me. When you blow it, this is the only place you should go. Otherwise, you're going to run to empty things that cannot profit or deliver or take care of you. You see, most of us abandon the Lord when we're in the midst of blowing it. We try to correct a wrong, one wrong, which we're all going to do with another wrong. We start putting wrongs on top of wrongs on top of wrongs, sometimes feeling like we have to earn our way back into God's favor. And we do this in all kinds of ways. I see it a lot in things like marriage. Right? We all can jump into marriage maybe in a wrong manner. Now, it's not saying that marriage is bad. It's not even saying we shouldn't want to get married, but oftentimes we do it all by ourselves and we don't need our parents' guidance and the church. We don't need the church's guidance, but we need, the, we need their building, but don't tell us how to get married because when you're in love, when you're in that season, you know without a doubt you are the first two people ever that truly love each other. Everyone else is like, man, they, they got problems in their marriage because they don't love like we love. Right? You're laughing because you're that silly when you're at that point, right? And so we walk into it, no, I got this God, I got this church, I got this mom and dad. I, I, we got to love like there's no other, I mean, we write songs about this corny stuff, don't we? And so we step into it thinking we got it all figured out, pursuing a good thing but in an unhealthy, unbiblical manner. God, don't tell me how I need to date. Don't tell me how I need to pursue a spouse. And then what happens is you get into your marriage and like every single marriage, you find yourself sideways in that marriage. Every marriage finds itself sideways. And here's what you end up going. You go, I had no idea I married a partner that's as sinful as he is. Because it's, it's your spouse's problem. Trust me, it is not your problem in the marriage. It's their problem, right? And, and if you're honest, you start going, whew, man, I didn't realize I could be so selfish. I mean, when I was single, I was so kind to myself and I was good to myself. I forgave myself whenever I needed to. I was compassionate. I was patient with myself. We are awesome to ourselves. 
But suddenly, you got to start doing that to another person, and it reveals just how broken we really are. And here's what happens. We get into it in the wrong way, and then instead of doing what Samuel says, trust God, follow through and, and obey him in everything as you go forward, we try to cover up a wrong with a wrong. We start with extramarital affairs. This maybe will fix it. If I can't get it here, I'll find it somewhere else. We try divorce. I just got to get out of this. This is the wrong person. That person was never right. I mean, I don't know how this happened. We try to get out that way. We try to get out through pornography. We escape that way. Guys often will do that. Or a lot of ladies will, will escape through materialism or social elitism. Right, if I can just use this relationship and try to make other relationships and I can be part of this group, I'll, I'll find my way and I'll get what I really need in other ways, but I'm not really honoring my marriage. Whatever it is, we try to cover a wrong with a wrong. And we all know that many of the marriages here in this church, mine included, have found themselves at that spot and it said, God, if you don't save me from this scenario, I'll try to cover it up with something that'll never work. And you have let God rebuild your marriage into something that's totally different. It may have been entered into wrongly, but you're moving forward, trusting him to build something that you had no idea how to build when you stepped in. We do this with financial decisions as well. Now, you guys don't, but I know people around our city and other places do things like this. We jump into something, we say, hey, man, other people, they got a home like that. We, honey, we got to get a home like that. Look, you see that car that Joe was driving? Man, I got to get a car like that. You see those cell phones they have, man, those iPhone Xs or Ys or Zs or GVs, whatever it is, it's coming out. I got to have that. You know, you know how cool I'll look if I have the latest stuff? That gym membership, man, if I had that gym membership, Honey, I'd be rocking it around here if I could get into it. So we, we jump into these financial commitments with really not thinking a whole lot about it. And then all of a sudden, a few months in, we're going, wow, what did I get myself into? And rather than moving forward and submitting to the Lord and saying, how do I walk out of this or through this in a God-honoring way? We do what most of us often do. I'll just stop paying. I just won't answer my phone call when they call. We, we bail and we try to exit these things in an ungodly way and we just pile one mistake on top of another mistake on top of another mistake. Rather than trusting the Lord to move forward in a way that would honor him. You see, there's really a bigger problem behind all these surface problems and that issue is, is trust. What do we really trust in when we're in the midst of these situations? And the re reality is, is we struggle to trust God and his goodness in the midst of these scenarios that we might find ourselves in. And we run to the empty things that he says will never save us. If I just had enough money, that would get me out of this. If I just had the right relationship, that would save me from this. If I just had a king or if we just had the right political leader, that would get us out of this. Not that we've ever experienced that in our nation, but... But we want something, we want everything else to save us, and we forget that only one person ever has and ever will. So what do we do then when we've blown it? How do we know that God will accept us back? And, and this is so important because the truth is when we've blown it, 
When we think we've done something that is disowned God, and we do this all the time, we think if God, if God had just seen how, how poorly I did, he'd never let me back. See, one of our problems is we think that it's our performance that gets God to love us. And so when we blow it, we think that we're out with God. And that's where we've missed it from the very beginning. It's not your performance, it's not my performance that's ever made you or me acceptable to God. That's where Samuel takes us next. How do, why does God accept me after I blow it? Here's my last point for you, and we'll see this in a several different places. God's faithfulness is based on his great character and pleasure, not our performance. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness is based on his great character and pleasure, not our performance. This is our motivation for pressing back into God and trusting him even when we know we've blown it because this is the basis of his accepting us back. It's not our performance. It's his character and his pleasure not our performance. Let me just show you a handful of other passages throughout the Bible that communicate this. The first one comes from Psalm 106. Excuse me, it comes from Samuel. That's a great spot, right? We're there anyways. Let me give you this one first. It says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. And it tells us why. For his great namesake. It doesn't go to their performance. It doesn't say he won't forsake his people. I mean, look at how cute they are. Aren't those little Israelites so cute and there's so many neat stories? He doesn't base it at all on them as a people. He says the reason he won't forsake them is for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Let me show you where he says things like this elsewhere in scripture. So where we get to the Psalms now. Psalm 106 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, so going back to the beginning of the, the nation, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. So here you see Israelites' poor performance in obedience to God, but rebelled by the sea at the Red, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. You see, you and I are part of a, a much bigger story. And one of our problems as Christians is the same human condition problem as all, is we think the world revolves around us. But it doesn't. It revolves around God. And we are a part of the story. He is the subject of that story. And it's his name and his mighty power that's being made known. Look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 48. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. You see, we begin to boast. When we think it's our performance that gets us in, we become prideful. Just like we become overly discouraged when we think it's our performance that should kick us out. Both of those are signs of pride. And both of those are, are forgetting who it is that's faithful in the story between us and God. Look at what the psalmist says in this next psalm. This is a psalmist that understands where his forgiveness comes from. He says, for your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. 
He doesn't say, look at all the things I've done to make it up to you, God. Now you owe me forgiveness. He says, no, for your namesake. He recognizes this is a God who has chosen to forgive, who has chosen to restore in spite of his own people. See, God's great name and his glory are the ultimate motivation for his salvation, for our salvation. And that's why God, throughout Scripture, has been the one who has always provided a substitute for our salvation. Did you see it in our story? How it points to this? Look at right in the midst of our story is this unique passage in verses 16 through 18. It almost doesn't seem to fit. It just snapped right in here and, and it starts like this. It says, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. It is it not wheat harvest today so now this doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you let me give a little context but at this point wheat harvest for the Israelites would have come late spring early summer and in Israel and in their place that was the most driest season of the year for them and that's important for wheat because wheat has to be dry when you harvest it when it's ready to be harvested when rain comes it basically will destroy a lot of the crop Okay, now the other thing we're going to see in a minute is they were to celebrate at a certain festival during that time and they weren't celebrating it. They hadn't celebrated it for many years. So what's happening is he's saying, hey, is it not wheat harvest today? Meaning, is it not the time of the year when it never rains? And then he says to them, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourself a king. So Samuel's telling them, hey, it never rains during this time. And just so you see as a sign, this great thing, God is going to reveal his anger towards your wicked decision to do what you've done. During the time when their harvest was ready to be harvested and it was going to destroy a portion of the crop. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Here's what I want you to see. This sign came during a very, what should have been a very significant festival, one of the key festivals that the Israelites were to celebrate. And if you were an Old Testament person or you're a person that time, they would have known this. They would have known in the scriptures. But I want to show you in Leviticus chapter 23, just this short little segment. If you read the whole chapter of chapter 23, it tells you all the festivals that the Israelites were to celebrate. This is one of the important ones. It says, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. So let me explain that. There is a, a festival of first fruits where the Israelites, when they planted their crops, when the first sign of any kind of a crop came up at all, that was the festival of first fruits. It was a simple little offering where they would take just what it was starting to come about and they would offer it back to the Lord saying, you have blessed us with this crop. There's only a little bit here, but we offer it back to you in faith that you are going to bring in the rest of the harvest over the next 50 days. That makes sense. So that was the, the sheaf waving. But then he says, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. Now the, the Feast of Weeks, or what is known nowadays as Pentecost, because what's amazing is they line up the, the Feast of First Fruits and the day, uh, or the, the um, 
Passover meal, we're connected. Jesus was that first fruits. He was raised on the day of first fruits. So he was like the first fruits of the offering to God. And then Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, was like the ingathering of the crops. They line up, these festivals did. But what God's doing here is when they should have been dedicating a portion of their crop to God, showing and revealing that you are our provider, God. You are the one who has brought us into this land and provided. They had neglected that festival for generation after generation after generation. And now in asking for a king, they were simply revealing once again, we're not dedicated to you, Lord. We want to do our own thing. And God in his mercy carries out, in a sense, the feast of weeks for them. Their crop was ready to be harvested. And he sends rain, which would have damaged part of the crop. It would have used it up. Really, the portion that they probably would have dedicated back to him to remind themselves that he was their true king. And God sends judgment. And instead of wiping out those who had sinned, which were the Israelites, he wipes out a portion of their crop. Reminding them, once again, that I will provide a substitute who should have received that judgment was you Israelites, but instead, I'll take it about on your grain to remind you that I am a God who will save you for my name's sake. I will not forsake you. You see, these simple things like this point toward his greater provision, his future provision in Jesus Christ that all these festivals pointed towards. And Romans 5.8 says this in the New Testament, but God shows his love for us in that while we were, what? Still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, God, instead of taking his wrath for our sin out on us, he put it upon his own son. Instead of us dedicating ourselves to the Lord and doing things in full submission to him, we want to do things our own way. We all, as the scriptures say, are sheep that have gone astray. And yet the Lord has stricken him for our sins. Not after we cleaned our lives up, not after our performance was acceptable. He sent one whose performance was acceptable to be your substitute and to be mine. And even here, we see that God's faithful salvation in our lives has never been part based on our performance. It's based, based on our trusting in his provided sacrifice. Look at what Titus 3 says along these same lines. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of life. I love how we see why God <laughs> welcomes us back, because he's provided a substitute for you. He's provided a sacrifice for you. And when you trust in that sacrifice, he saves you. 
he begins to change you and he transforms you. And, and Samuel, you see, even here, is acting as this great interceder. Look at how we end this passage. It says Samuel says, hey, moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Look at how even Samuel models this. They had rejected Samuel. They'd already told him, hey, hey, man, we don't need you anymore, Samuel. We want a king. We don't want you to lead us. And Samuel felt hurt by that. And God told Samuel, he said, hey, hey, son, get in line. They're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me. And yet even in the midst of their rejection of Samuel, Samuel says, far be it from me that I would ever stop being a priest who prays and intercedes for his people. But see, Samuel is just a shadow of the greater priest. And Hebrews chapter 5 tells us, excuse me, 7, tells us that greater priest. It says, The former priests of which Samuel was were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Meaning, we need as broken people someone who continues to intercede for us. So God sent him. He, but he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. You see, Jesus is interceding and praying and instructing you right now as I speak. His words are guiding us. His words are reminding us that it's not your performance. It's not whether you've blown it or not or how great a week you had or how bad a week you had. It's who are you leaning into? Who are you trusting in? Where are you going when you find yourself in the midst of a difficult situation? And he's continuing to remind you that nothing in this world will ever save you. Don't try to cover up a wrong with another wrong. Return to him. Rededicate yourself to the Lord, the one who is always faithful, not based on your performance, but based on his great name. I found that Christians most often wander, and this is true of myself as well, wander from the Lord, not in pursuit of evil things. It's rare that an evil thing causes a Christian to stray away. What I've found is most common is that Christians wander from the Lord in pursuit of good things and even acceptable things, but in an evil way, just like Israel did. We want to be successful. Nothing wrong with that. We want our family to be intact. We want our kids to be a certain way. We want to, you know, have a certain lifestyle. We want all these things that are neutral in and of themselves. But the problem is we start pursuing them and making them more than they ever should be. And when we do that, we wander from the one who is calling out to us every single day saying, I'm your true king. I am the only king. Your home, your career, your children, your fame, your acceptance in your community or society, none of those are going to die for you. In fact, if you're honest, every time you don't perform at a level that those things require, they'll kick you out on the street, 
faster than you can blink an eye. But we serve a God who even when we wander, and we do, even when we blow it, and we do, is calling you back and reminding you that it is not, it's not your performance. It's my performance for you. It's my great name that has called you out as my people. Trust me. Return to me. Here's how I want to close today. Real simple. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes right now and picture your Father God. Just a simple prayer. And I've just put together some words here from this passage speaking to us to, to picture that these words are written to us. And I want you to close your eyes and picture your Father God speaking these words that we've heard today to you personally. The Lord is speaking to you today through this word. And he's saying this to you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to admit your sin. I have provided a sacrifice for your sin. My sacrifice is the means of your forgiveness. Don't turn to empty things that cannot profit. They cannot deliver you. Turn back to me. I will not forsake you. I am your Savior. And my commitment to you is based on my great character and my pleasure, not your performance. Therefore, serve me. Serve me with all your heart. Church, do not turn away from your God. Don't turn to the empty things in this world that will never, ever save you. Dedicate yourself to him, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray.